I think I think a lot of companies when they when they raise money internally, the the senior senior leadership team doesn't really fall into this trap. But a lot of people think, oh, we have twenty one million dollars. Or good, we've arrived. No, no, no. What just landed in the front yard are twenty one million bricks, and we need to start building. Like something needs to be done with every single one of those bricks, and our job now is to start laying them. We live in a world that's kind of crazy right now. Are you adding more to the system than taking from it? I wasn't willing to tell myself that I didn't believe in myself enough to make it work. Come to Austin, just do cool stuff. That's the cover charge. Hello, this is Nick, and this is the latest episode of the Cover Charge Podcast. In this episode, we have a very special guest, my friend, longtime friend, Ray Machuca. Ray, thanks for coming in. What's up? Glad to be here. Yeah, so Ray, um, we've known each other for about five years. Um, we met in March, I think March of 2015. Ray was working at a company in town called Flow Sports, where he still serves as, what's your title? My title, it's a, that's a good story. My, my title is Chief Creative Officer, although I have no why. The, the reason why I said Chief Creative Officer is because I just finished um, uh, reading a piece about um, Lassiter at Pixar, and he's the Chief Creative Officer. And i just a huge Lassiter fan. This is... This is pre the stuff that came out. It got him <laughs> fired from Pixar. So I'm not keeping that part of it. But then Martin wanted me to be like, I don't know. He had some title in mind. And I was like, chief creative officer will be my title. Okay. Cool. Now I realize. Martin's the guy who hired you. Yeah. Martin. People don't know. Yeah. Martin hired me at Flow Sports, Flowcast at the time. But I think um, I'm trying. My, my real title should be chief content officer. Okay. You oversee. All of the on-demand content. Yeah, so I oversee. Company. Yeah, so I oversee all the editorial content, all the film content, and then um, you know if we do any advertising stuff, that that rolls up to me as well. Got it. So, um, you know, Flow Sports is a local Austin company um, that live streams thousands of events a year, and they have twenty-five plus different sports verticals. So 27, I was twenty-seven. Twenty-seven now. now. And uh, yeah, I worked there for four years alongside Ray. And the first interaction we had, I thought was really funny. And um, I knew that we'd hit it off there. I was interviewing for the job and we sat down. You, our interview was different than any other interview I had with anyone else. We sat down and you opened up your computer and you pulled up the website and you said, what do you think? And <laughs> I soon regretted it after asking you. And uh, I'm not the type to like try to gloss over things so I gave you my real opinion yeah and uh didn't hold back and and at a certain point you was like okay okay I got it I got it mm -hmm. and I could tell you were like pained by mm -hmm. the things I was saying not because I was blindsided you because you knew all these things already yeah and uh and me just pointing them out seemed to just give you heartburn but yeah. I, I assume it, it, you yeah. respected that because I, you hired you said you well, want to hire me right yeah that's what you need so it's like you know, it wasn't a case of where I think my baby's beautiful, but it's actually ugly. It was like, I know my baby's ugly. You just don't have to say that. That's the agreement here. <laughs> right. And I remember just feeling like you ever been in the water, maybe, and the waves are coming. You get hit by a good one. 
And then you're like, damn, that was something. Boom. And then all of a sudden, bam, bam, bam. You're like, man, the waves just don't stop, do they? That's what it was like getting your feedback. I was like, man, does this ever stop? And so I told I told Martin, uh, I was like, yeah, I like that guy. He seems pretty intense. I think he'll be good. Yeah, it worked out, man. We, You were my closest friend working at Flow. Um, you know, you. it's funny. We used to talk to each other, and we'd be like, I triple cone of silence yeah. for things that we wanted to keep keep yep. to ourselves. Cones, uh, cones, uh, the cones are not going to be invoked in this conversation. Of course obviously, not. Being a podcast, okay, got of course it. not. But uh, one thing I found interesting about you is, you know, for people you know, listening, Ray's got I think two arm sleeves. Uh, at the time when I started Flow, you had a couple of earrings. Uh, you're very expressive, um, very artistic, creative. And, but you come from a military background. And so I thought that was kind of interesting how, like a paradox that, you know, I went to military school from seventh through 12th grade in Mm -hmm. Minnesota. And, you know, it just felt like the, my, uh, individualism was kind of getting sucked out in that military environment. I learned a lot of great lessons and I love the military for what it taught me and, and, you know, armed service men and women, but I was kind of caught off guard that you were that you have that military background. You actually really enjoyed that time and talked about it a lot, given that you seem to be so expressive and like, you don't seem like the type of person that likes to be told what to do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's good. So, you know, if, if, one, I'm, I'm, you can probably your listeners. I don't know who's going to be listening to this possibly, but, um, you know, I, I they can probably hear my Southern accent coming through. It drives me crazy. But yeah, so, you know, just being from the South, I had just a lot of military people in my family. And so it wasn't very odd to me. Um, My, my, even my stepdad was in the Navy. My uncle, oldest uncle was in Vietnam. My dad was in the Army. My grandfather was in the Air Force. It was just like on and on and on and on. And so it really wasn't a big deal. Um, but I, 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 that just seemed like a normal thing. And it seemed like a cool thing to do. You know, I, I looked at it as like a cool, different thing, you know, as just some, another experience. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know if you talked to me when I was, in, I did serve in Afghanistan. I, I think if you talked to me then, I, I wouldn't be as enthusiastic <laughs> about my experience. But it's like a lot of things, the further you get from it, the more fond you are, maybe perhaps you for your military school, right? Yeah. Like the further you get away, the dark spots get a little brighter, you know, but, um, yeah, I guess that is a little, a little different. And, um, I, so many people out there today will say they support the armed services. They res- they respect the armed services. They're so thankful, but you know, service is down. Yeah. I love it, but they don't want to do it. Yeah. You know, like there's, 10 people in my office who all they talk about is the military and how cool it is. They never did it. Right. Yep. And so, um, now just so everyone knows I was in the guard. I don't want to make come off like I'm some sort of, you know, badass. I'm not, um, I was in the guard and I just did my things. I thought it'd be a cool experience. I get some free college and then I wasn't into it for six months and nine 11 happened. And I ended up serving in Afghanistan for like nine months. And when I was there, I was there for one year anniversary for a year or nine months. And, um, I was very lucky. Nothing. I had, there's plenty of cool stories, interesting stories, but I was very fortunate to like, you know, it was not a, it was not a big deal. I would not want to go 
at, at during other times. Certainly. Sure. Tell, tell the mind sweeping story. I think that's my favorite one. Which one? When you were sweeping for mines and there was an explosion not that far away from you. Oh, 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 oh. So yeah, I wasn't, uh, <clears throat> I wasn't sweeping for mines. We were, um, so we were, is this, so I think this one you're, uh, I'm mentioning is, so we were, one of our main things, there, so we were, we were in Bagram, Afghanistan, and so we were the first people there, and our duty was basically to build the base, specifically like launch pads, helicopter launch pads, and put up, um, you know, HESCO walls, which are like, think of a giant refrigerator box that's collapsible and expands, you fill it with dirt. We put up all the perimeter walls and then put up, you know, towers on top of it. And so we were out there clearing and making helipads. Um, and so the area had been, how it works is they go in first with, you know, uh, a hydrema, which flails the ground. Then they go back in with like dogs. Then they'll go in um, and they'll, those flail it with hydrema machines. Then they'll go in with like metal detecting equipment. Then they'll go in with dogs. So all that's been done. And now we're out there thinking we're cool. We're just walking around. And I was on a dozer, on a bulldozer, um, you know, a heavily plated bulldozer and sort of having lunch or whatever. And my buddy, I think his last name may have been Holmes. He was right, not, you know, 15 feet from me, turned his dozer and he just turned the dozer and then he went over a mine and just shot out. It was a small, it wasn't like an anti-tank mine. He would have been, it'd have been really bad for both of us, but it was a small, but we've been out there for weeks, gone through all these things. And we're literally feet up. I'm like eating canned peaches, not a care in the world, you know? And then, you know, it goes off and then we're like, you don't even know what you, do I get off the dozer? I don't know what we're supposed to do. It's like, what other equipment can we bring out here? It's like, we've done everything and there's still stuff in the ground. So that was, uh, that was, um, yeah. Did you feel the shock? Like it was like right next to you or was it? It was, it was small. It was small, okay. but it goes up the dirt. Like, you know, if you like shot a shotgun into dirt, it was like that. It was big enough to where it would take off your leg, but it was not so big to where any tank mine would like take a dozer off the ground. You know, they'll, they'll destroy a tank. Yep. So that would have been catastrophic for just anyone in the vicinity. But that, luckily it was just enough to, you know, but he was on top of it with a bulldozer and it just popped out the side. But it was quite alarming. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it was weird just like, and then, you know, just from the time you got there to the time you left, you just walked around, you know, staring at the at your boots. You just walked around staring at the mm-hmm. ground. Even when I came back to Fort Polk, I was just walking to Chow and everyone were talking, smoking cigarettes, you know, our feet are just, our eyes are just plastered to the ground, you know, it took us a kind of a while. Was that the closest call you ever had? That, w- yeah, that was the closest to like something going off. Um, I had just, I had a, a funny thing once, uh, was when I was filling up the Hescos, I was near, I was way out there by myself. And so out there in the desert, you know, it's Bagram Air Force Base. You can see it, um, now, you know, it's huge, but then it was just, you know, one drive called Disney Drive, <clears throat> named after Specialist Disney, who was like one of the first people to lose their lives there. And uh, we're filling up Hesco's with dirt, but in the dirt, there's just stuff from, you know, ru- the wars with Russia and everything. There's MIGs and tanks out there everywhere. It's shocking. You're just like a MIG, like just MIGs just sitting there, like the wings are taking off. They'll, they'll, the logos will take 
metal from them and, you know, uh, copper wire as best they can. But, um, and so there's just debris in the dirt. And so I was, I had a, uh, a, uh, a, a front end loader with like a clamshell. So it can, it can like, has a jaw that can open and grab dirt. And so I'm like just ramming into dirt as a pup. I'm assuming it's all clear. It's been clear, but you're just kind of like, I guess. And I pick up that dirt and I go to drop it in the HESCO. And when the the jaws open up, there was like a, like a, a car transmission, like a, uh, on top of the clamshell. And so when I opened up the arm, it threw that transmission on top of the, on top of the dozer and they slid down the arms, turned sideways, and that whole rod came through the cab of my front end loader, broke the glass. I ducked, and it came through the glass behind me. <laughs> so, you know, I'm out there. like I got like a dip of Copenhagen. I got like a sunglass. I'm like, whatever. And like, I open it up, and I hear this scrape, and I look up, and I just duck. And this rod just goes shooting through my cab. It probably would have taken my head off. <laughs> but big, heavy transmission goes flying through my cat. That was the first, like, I was like, damn, man, I thought I was cool. Just, I'm just goofing off. I'm out here just goofing off, you know. You got to be on your toes. You got to be on your toes. I mean, I got to keep your head on the swivel. Yeah. Oh, okay, let's take it back for a little bit. You grew up, <clears throat> excuse me, on a, in a small town right outside Baton Rouge. What's the name of the town? And give people, give, give me a sense of, like, what that town was like. Uh, so I grew up in, outside Baton Rouge, in, um, in a, t- in a parish, we have parishes in Louisiana, Livingston Parish in a town called Watson. And there was one red light corner store. And then the grocery store was Walmart. And it was like a 30 minute drive into town. And so there was 90 people, maybe a hundred in my graduating high school class. Emma, my daughter now, she's 15. She has 750 in her class. And, um, you know, <clears throat> yeah, very small, very, uh, very redneck, very lacoon ass, very, very country. Got it. What you went straight from there to Loyola or University of New Orleans, but you went to school in New Orleans for a bit, right? Before you went to the military, after you got back from the military. Yeah. So when I graduated high school, went to LSU, LSU was whatever, not as fine. I got activated. I went to Afghanistan. I went, first, you go do the workup. You go to, I was in Camp Beauregard and Fort Polk like forever. Then you go to Afghanistan and you come home. And so I was just like, I don't want to go to LSU. I really want to do like a film. That's what I really want to do. I want to do a film program. And the University of New Orleans had a film program. And if you're in the military in Louisiana, another reason why I joined because I'm just kind of dumb and there was no scholarships in my future. Although I realize now college wasn't actually that expensive. <laughs> my mom made me think it was like every semester you were basically buying a car. That's how she kind of put it in my head. So if you join, if you join the military in Louisiana, you get free college tuition. And so I had free college tuition at any public university. So uh, UNO had a, has a really good film program. I think they still do. And so when I got back, I, I transferred to University of New Orleans and enrolled in their film program. What from an early age you were just obsessed with movies, right? Yeah, I think, um, man, I don't know what it was, but my my grandma was, you know, I spent summers with my grandma, and she was, you know, kind of a kind of an outlaw. She had two VCRs, <laughs> so she would record all these rent movies and record them. 
And she had a room about the size of your office, just stacked with every movie she'd ever rented. And then she had like a little, um, you know, like a glossary, a table of contents. They were all numbered. You had like three movies on a, and they weren't by category. It was just like, here's the three movies I rented this week. And they would just be, you know, and I remember like, it'd be like, you know, <clears throat> 20,000 leagues under the sea, ice station, zebra, mysterious Island. You know, these movies just way back when, you know, and I didn't know what they were. And so I would just literally grab VHS tape and put it in. And when I was, I'd spend the summers with my grandmother and she'd be at work and I'd be at home just watching movies nonstop. And <clears throat> I think my parents thought I was just lazy. Maybe I was, but I would like just be fascinated with what was going on. I wanted to be there more than anything. I just wanted to, I either wanted to, I wanted to see it. I wanted to get closer to it. You know, I remember just memorizing. I watch movies now that I saw. I was actually, I rented Mysterious Island last weekend and watched it with um, Mazzy, my youngest. And I was, I just knew all these lines. I knew all these lines. And there was actually scenes where I remember as a kid mimicking scenes to my parents and getting in trouble. Like there was a scene where this guy, he finds a map and he like snaps his finger and waves to the guy to give him the map. I remember being at the dinner table with my parents when I got back from Texas and my mom had like mashed potatoes. I kind of, I kind of snapped my hey, hand here. And my dad jumped up to me to the bedroom, whooped my ass, you know, for like snapping at my mother. But I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. You know, I was just like, I would really just watch it and I would just be fascinated with the whole thing. And even to this day, you know, um, that's kind of how I am. I've last night, Lily came in the room and I'm watching a serious man, Coen Brothers movie for like the fifth time this week. <laughs> She's like, why are you watching this? Why is this on again? I didn't know what to say besides I just hit play again. <laughs> I don't know why I'm watching it again. But yeah, it's kind of, I think it's important. I think finding something that people will do compulsively is like, it's like the easiest path to, you know, you're not going to make somebody. If Emma's interested, I, Emma, my daughter got a, had a, just this fascination with slime. I, I, I pray you'll be spared from it. No, I'm already seeing it with mine. Yeah. Emma got into the slime thing and, we didn't chide her about it or don't do that. I mean, we got mad because it'd be all over the place. But if she was, the more she's into it, the more we just brought her to the store and buy her more glue. I want some with beads. I want to see if I can, okay, fine. It was just like, I bought her a little, she wanted to take it, photos of it. So I bought her a little setup and I set up a light, like a, you know, like a lampshade in her closet, little studio space to shoot her slime and stuff. And she wanted to mail it to Slimers in the community to get them to rate it, you know? And so I would, we just, okay, fine. It's just what she wants to do. Cause I can try to make her interested in math, <laughs> which doesn't seem to be <laughs> in our future. Or I can tell her that when she gets into something, you should get into it and enjoy that. Cause that's the deal. Yep. That's basically what the deal is. And yep. so even when, <clears throat> so today, and I'll tell you know, Lily this all the time, she's struggling with the subject. I think I'm not worried because I remember the slime. And there's when she, something when she got when she got curious, she figured it out. And so I remember her saying once, she goes, I'm really glad that I didn't um mail that slime to that slimer for a review. They had like a million followers. And my wife says, Why is that? Well, because <clears throat> I saw that 
they gave this slime slimer a bad review, and I think it traveled a long way, and I think it set up. You know, the slime got hard in the travel. Oh yeah. And so I think I would have gotten a bad review because it would have been different. But yeah. I'm like, damn. Okay. Like she's like, she's like peeling back the layers yeah, on this whole. So, so it's just like she just she'll bump into something eventually that she's into, and then she'll figure it out. Yeah. And it's kind of ridiculous to think she's going to figure it out in Bowie high school. And it's unrealistic also to think she's going to figure it out in college. It takes a long time. But you figured it out early that you were into movies. And then you, just to fast forward a little bit, you're at the University of New Orleans. Then I believe it's pronounced New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans you can say New Orleans. I'm from New Minnesota. New Orleans. Uh, did you finish there? Or did you leave and talk about that and then... You started your own little film business production company, right? Yeah. So with there, so there in college, <clears throat> I just, I don't know, n- nothing against them. I, I just don't know how suited I am for a classroom setting. And I, I wanted to make money. <laughs> and I wanted to do the thing. I wanted to do the thing. And, you know, there's a lot of talking about the thing. And when you do make the thing, it's kind of like... It's just, it's not the same. And so what I did was I found, I looked around my class and I found who are the two, who are the couple of the smartest, most badass dudes in here? And there's two guys, Sam Macaluso and Shung Lee. And I was like, those two guys are really talented. And I just started hanging out with those guys. And we actually ended up working on a film together. And then I said, hey, why don't we start a little production company and start doing like content? And um, I just said, okay, whatever. And they were like, whatever. And sure enough, I found... A client and I went and pitched them on a sales DVD to do a, a piece of a piece on them and they can instead of instead of mailing someone a brochure they were a caterer like the biggest caterer in Baton Rouge instead of mailing someone a brochure they can mail someone a DVD and get a real sense of the company and blah 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 and it was really funny because they were like well you've never done this we've never done this and my attitude was like I mean how hard can it be I mean, it's not that hard. And if you shoot something that sucks, you just shoot it again, whatever. You know, and I, I think that attitude is like, that's not the scholastic attitude. The scholastic attitude is like, you have your idea and you take your shot and you have your grade and that's what it is. And that's not how it is. Like, it really is like a process. And it's sort of like, you know, you need to do your best to like not waste money and have your thoughts on paper. And like, when you get good at it, hopefully you'll, get there faster, but it's just like, we just got to go do it. What question do we ask? We didn't really know. Well, ask all of them. <laughs> it's basically what you do, right? And like, we use this shot, that shot sucks. Okay, we have to go shoot that again. You know, that kind of thing. And so um, we literally had, Sam had, a, his dad bought him a camera. We set, set up lights in our kitchen, made a demo reel. Um, and then I literally went to Best Buy, bought a DVD printer, Something that would print labels on a DVD, bought blank DVDs, we cut it, we brought other people into the company so just so we could use their stuff in our demo, <laughs> right? Um, made that DVD, made that DVD, made our business cards. I went and bought a DVD player and jumped in the car, drove to Baton Rouge, Unique Cuisine, Susan Strange, awesome woman. Pitched her, and she was like, okay. <laughs> and so I got on the phone. What was, was the name of your company? Switch. Switch Pictures. Um, 
And so they were like, whatever, dude. And we did all that, stayed up all, did it one day, all of that. I drove to Baton Rouge in the morning, pitched her in the morning, came back with a $5,000 check deposit, you know? And they were like, holy shit. You know, what'd you, what'd you say? Tell me. And I was like, I don't know. I kind of just blacked out. You know, just like, <laughs> like Will Ferrell in old school. Yeah. It's just like, but I, I think, and this is a lesson I've taken to my meetings today is like, you know, it's important to fuss over what you're going to say. You know, you should know. Um, but it's really how you say it. And I think she could just tell that you're eager, we're eager, enthusiastic. Yeah. She knew what good looked like. Cause she's, a successful woman. She's, this was good. We were enthusiastic. I was authentic. I wasn't trying to sound all fancy. I was just like, we want to do this. We want to make content. Here's proof. We, I think this would be awesome for you. And she did it. And, um, we really screwed up the first print of DVDs because <laughs> we had a misspelling and like, you know, we're using software. There's a misspelling, a huge disaster. And we presented to her the final product and there was like a huge misspelling. I was like, Oh shit. But anyway, it wasn't without its bumps, obviously. But what, uh, during that time, what's going on in your personal life? Um, well at the time things were good. You know, I had, um, um, I was with, we had my, my now wife and I had a little baby and we were moving, living in Baton Rouge. I was commuting to, to university of new Orleans. Everything was good. Everything was good. You know, it would, it would, it's gone up and down, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, I think another thing that helped me was like, I had a chirping bird at the house. I'm like, dude, I ain't got time for fucking classes. We got to go. Right. And then, you know, when Katrina hit, I, had tons of more work and I ended up getting more and more and more and more and more work until finally I was like working full time. And then I had one class to take. I woke up like in a panic one night. Oh my God, I'm not going to be a college graduate. You know, but both of my parents were high school dropouts. And so I was like, Oh my God. So I like took this class and got my degree like two years. I was like, I was like working with a house and a car. Yep. <laughs> and I was like just taking an online course went down there and got my diploma basically so my mother could see the diploma and watch me walk across the stage. But yeah. Barely made it. Barely then, made it. At what point were you like, I, I'm going to go to New York and really try to make a career for myself in New York. Talk about like the, the past that led you to that. Cause there's a great anecdote I want to get to in the New York story. Okay. <clears throat> to unpack in there. So I guess, um, so, you know, uh, I, I mean, during that time I was, you know, I, I was working at this company, kind of being a, a production manager for a small local show and, um, with 07, 08 economic stuff, I lost that job. I got another job in an ad agency that I was like super jacked for. I was like directing and editing and doing a lot of after effects. And I was so excited to be there. Um, and then six months after that, that was in the automotive. That's mainly the bulk of any advertising agency. It's going to be automotive and like insurance. So when that happened, I got laid off. So then I'm like, okay, now I'm editing new spots at the local TV station. I'm like, dude, this sucks. Everyone was so thrilled to have me. So like, I knew what I was doing, you know, but I was a very reluctant worker. <laughs> I was like, man, this is terrible. I hate this. 
And, um, and then, um, sure enough, I got laid off from that job. And so I lost, I got laid off three times in two years. I was going to lose my house and lose my car. And I was about to get a job, reach out to some, some people I knew to see if I could get a job at a plant in Baton Rouge. And my stepdad, who's like, what's a plant, like a manufacturing plant? Yeah. Chemical plant. Okay. Um, you know, you go into Baton Rouge and it just looks like. It's like petrochemicals. Yeah. It looks like Blade Runner. It's just like, you know, furnaces and fire and it's, um, it smells terrific. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to get a job as a, uh, in a plant. And, and my dad told me, he goes, you're going to do all that for this house. It was a shitty house, you know, outside Baton Rouge. Your house is really nice. They, they don't don't think that this is this the house I was living in. It was like a, a starter home, like a hundred twenty thousand dollar plot home. You don't do all that for this. He's kind of like looking around the room, and I was like, "Yeah." All of a sudden, that seemed really stupid. You know, like I want to do I want to do content. Now I'm going to do all of this to save the house. That is silly. And so I literally. Bought a plane ticket, called my buddy up, Shung Lee. And I, and I think that's really the strength, the wisdom of going to college. Uh, unless you're going to be an accountant or a surgeon. <laughs> if you're going to do the creative arts or something like that, you need to get out there and do it. If my daughter told me I want to be a photographer, I wouldn't care if she graduated high school. If I knew that's what she really wanted to do. I, you know, it's like, go shoot photography. That's the only thing that counts. That's the only thing. Um, and so my dad told me, you know, um, and so I, I had these contacts because of going to UNO and I called up my buddy, Shung Lee, and he was in New York. He said, yeah, man, come up here. And, you know, he was doing web work in New York. And so naturally, that's what I started doing when I went up there. And I was just trying to like, I was also, you know, I've, I've struggled with like sobriety and other issues like that. And I was just like really struggling. I've lost my job. And I lost the job to no fault of my own, miraculously. I don't know if that shows just like a real lack of, you know, oversight by my employers or I'm just that brilliant. <laughs> I think it's lack of oversight. Um, but, you know, I went up there and Shung Lee had plenty of work. And um, but in the end, I was just like you crashed with him. I crashed with him. I was like, they had an office, strangely enough, in um, the financial district in Manhattan, a content business. We had an office, like the very top floor, like across from like New York Stock Exchange. To I don't know why. Totally bizarre. But they just had a room, kind of like the size of your office, for rent. One room. And so you had all your editing suite there? Yeah, we're all, in, we're all just jammed in there, you know, and uh, I slept like in there for a while, which is a very common thing to do in New York. You just sleep wherever you can. <laughs> it's just brutal. And, you know, I kind of started getting a little more work and making a little more contacts. But at the end of the day, I just knew I, Lily and Emma, my, my baby mama and baby were not going to come to New York. Yeah. They were not going to come to New York. I knew it. And so Lily was like, you know, um, <clears throat> I'll go anywhere but I'm not going to New York. And so I just took a sheet and an email. I still have the email. I just wrote down every city that's better for my field than Baton Rouge. It was like LA, Seattle, Portland, 
Denver, San Antonio, Houston, all, it's like every major Atlanta, every major city that has some sort of media was on that list. And she picked Austin because we weren't together at the time. And she had two ex-boyfriends here. <laughs> so That's she was funny. like, I'll go to Austin. Maybe I'll hook up with so-and-so. <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever. I don't care. Back in New York, you, you are self-conscious a little bit about your accent, mm-hmm. but somebody told you to lean into your accent in New York, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my buddy, Shang Lee, I was, uh, I was lucky enough and I was staying with a buddy in this galaxy mall in West New York, just over the river. And I was on this bus and, um, I don't remember what the exit was galaxy or something. And I got on the bus and I'm like in the back and I'm not, I have no idea where I'm supposed to, what it's supposed to look like where I'm going. And I said, Hey, this ain't get off at Galaxy, right? And the bus driver learned, looked back. <laughs> Maybe he was expecting to see like a cowboy hat, like a 10, 10 gallon cowboy hat and flannel, you know? But I looked like, I don't know, a normal ish guy for New York, which isn't saying much. But um, he looked at me. He was like, yeah. <laughs> and then later on, I said, man, Shang Li, man, it kind of looked at me really weird. You know, should I? I know I sound like a redneck, man. Should I take elocution lessons or something? Is this going to be a problem? He goes, dude, are you kidding me? There's 8 million people here, and they're desperate. They're desperate to stand out. You actually you actually have a difference. If I was you, I would crank it up. You should be wearing flannel jackets, cowboy hats, and boots, man. I would walk around like that. Everyone here is, like, desperate to be original. Yeah. No, And I was like, okay, I still don't. I still don't own it like you should. You know, I'm still kind of like, I guess. I don't like doing this kind of stuff because I sound kind of funny to me. But it's hard to, yeah. So yeah. I think, dude, I say lean into it too. Yeah. You got a big personality. Yeah. And lean into it. But, um, yeah. The Martin Martin would critique me because we'd be, my boss at, at Flow, he would say, hey, man, before you go into that presentation, don't be too folksy. <laughs> Cause I would just, that's my, that's my go-to, you know, I'm just like, you know, I, I like it. I think that kind of is very disarming. It's very, just much more authentic, but he didn't wasn't want me to say y'all too many times, you know, yeah. but, uh, it works for James Carville. He's yeah. like super folksy. He's just like, and he's like, you know, the rage and Cajun people love it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm no Carville, not, not to make a comparison. So you said you've had battles with, uh, being sober, addiction what when did that start and what what was a low point for you um low point's tricky um i uh <clears throat> what you'll find is you can always go lower <laughs> it's like how do i like hit my bottom faster than i could lower my standard <laughs> right there's no like you know um uh i don't want to get into a you know, a big drunk log or anything, but you know, I started, I remember being really young and getting into granny's whiskey and, uh, and her cigarettes. <laughs> a lovely woman. I love my grandma. She's uh she's real people. Um, you know, and being so drunk, I couldn't stand and thinking, I love this. I love it. And, um, you know, if you're doing that at 12, that's not ideal. I'd be, I'd be, if, if, if I ever caught Emma, my little, my little precious 15 year old doing that, I would probably have a heart attack. You know, from that, my parents were sober because they've had trouble. My, my biological father's had trouble. He's, you know, 
he's just kind of a he's what you call a ne'er do well. You had to look that up, but it's just he's just never really <laughs> on the up and up. Um. Anyway, but my parents were sober uh, or upstanding at the time for a great long period. So I would, you know, when I was at home in Louisiana, I'd huff gas and break into their volume and take bottles of Robitussin, just anything I could do to not feel myself in my own skin. I think I've just always been a very anxious and nervous person. And so, you know, I, I did that for a long time up until, you know, I was in my first, um, you know, I was using, you know, IV narcotics by the time I was, you know, maybe 20. Um, I already gone through the levels of drinking until I blacked out, smoking pot and drinking until I was like just totally incoherent. I, I, I totaled my truck. I got the scar on my forehead. I totaled my truck in a blackout when I was 16. Um, just that kind of stuff. And so I say just that kind of stuff, like everyone understands. But, um, oh, God, typical. Yeah, typical. Um, but then when I was 20, I was, you know, put in my first psych place. Um, and then from there, I was moved to an inpatient, then did outpatient, sober for a short time, then ended up, Lily and I were engaged and just kind of went through this cycle forever, basically until. I moved to Austin and uh, it got to where in Baton Rouge where <clears throat> I couldn't go to a McDonald's pick, pick an area of town. You know how you kind of stay in your little area. I would just like, I, you literally could draw a giant circle around Baton Rouge and there was no place where I hadn't like ran off the road drunk or pulled in to shoot dope or bought drugs over here or, you know, just like, there's no AA meeting I could go to that I hadn't walked in loaded. There was no person I knew in AA or my sobriety little circle that didn't know what a, you know, what a fuck up I was. <laughs> you know, it was like just, it was brutal. It got to the point where I remember thinking, and I told some friends this, I mean, I wonder if I should maybe like not be alive anymore because I'm worried when Emma starts becoming conscious of, her parents, I'll just be a bad example. And at least if I disappear right now, I'll just be a fantasy. I'll be this great father. I, that would be more poignant than like her watching. <laughs> Cause I just, that was like me trying was the same thing every night. Just the same. And so I moved to Austin. I was just like, man, I don't want to do this anymore. And just went to some meetings and found a, a group of men that really I respected and just, man, I don't know what it was, but, I got sober. So I've been sober for 10 years. Congrats. Yeah. Is it, uh, does it get easier over time? Yeah. I mean, it has to, you couldn't do it. I remember thinking like, okay, you know, you see these slogans one day at a time, one day at a time. And there's a time where I was like, one day at a time, one day at a time. But one day at a time is hell. <laughs> that's my description of hell. Wanting to just get through this one day. That's hell. That's groundhog day. And so there's my whole mindset was like, um, that that's the goal is one day. It, it's kind of a bizarre thing, you know, it's like, no, it's actually, it's, that sounds disastrous. And, but once you really start turning the corner on this stuff and there's a whole, you know, I have to be a pretty 
it'd take a philosopher to explain it, I guess. Uh, but you know, once you start turning the corner, it's not one day at a time. It's like, I'm never going to do this again, period. That's what I know. You know, so, um, do you still go to meetings? Yeah. I, I stopped going to meetings. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, basically no. I, I went to a meeting a couple of weeks ago and before that I hadn't gone to a meeting in a couple of years. It's mainly because of, I'm lazy, but mainly because I guess the main reasons are ungrateful and lazy. <laughs> but my third reason is that my, my office moved and it's just brutal to get to a noon meeting and you know, it's just life stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you moved to Austin, you're able to get sober. Um, you're not together with Lily at the time, but you're getting some, your career going in Austin. Talk about that period. And, and if you don't mind sharing you, at one point you declared bankruptcy, right? Yeah. Um, so when I got, when I finally, when I finally got sober, um, I was sober for a little while and I was living with my baby mama and, uh, which is bizarre. We're not together. We're live. We wanted to move to Austin. And if we had to like save money up on our own and get two houses and move, you know, it, we would have never done it. So like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move in this apartment for a year, use that to establish ourselves and then whatever. And so moved living with my baby mama and I started getting sobriety. I started like, I wasn't like white knuckling it. Anytime I've ever wanted to drink or do drugs, that's what I've done. I don't not do it when I want to do it. <laughs> Does that make sense? There's like, there's no like, I really want to drink, but I'm not going to. No, nope, doesn't work. That's bull. Then you don't want to drink. That's what that means, right? Um, and so I started like, I just felt really different. And all of a sudden I was like, man, this isn't healthy. Uh, I need to get out of here. And so I moved into a 500 square foot apartment that was just, to this day, Emma, she was really young at the time. She'll refer to it as Daddy's Hotel. That's how small it was, like 500 square feet, just roach infested. And I was living there, sanding cabinets for some friends. Never been happier in my life. I got to where I, I remember Lily coming over and needing money because she was struggling with her own issues at the time. And I had like 200 bucks in my checking account. She needed like 100 bucks for groceries. And I gave it to her. In my mind, I was like, I don't care. Like, there was nothing you could take from me. I was like, oh, good. I'm down to my last hundred. <laughs> I was like, what? What's going to happen? Nothing. You know? And so I would go to Randall's and buy beans and sausage and rice. Okay, whatever. I don't care. And, like, that was the first time I experienced freedom. Like, I'm terrified of failure. Well, this is what failure looks like. <laughs> it's 400 square, $400 a month apartment. You're eating beans and rice and sausage. But there's still a swimming pool, and my daughter's with me every other week. This is pretty good. Austin's nice. <laughs> you go to the park, and I was like, man, I've been, like, so afraid of failing over this. This is nothing, right? And so that attitude allowed me to, like, kind of consider that maybe I could get somewhere. If failing just looks like this, then that means nothing. I don't care. And so I started, you know, and I had some content. And so we entered a, a, a music video we'd made into South by Southwest. I got accepted. 
on the strength of that, I started shopping that because, you know, it's just Austin's who you know in production. And so I was just like not working, but I got in South by and then I got another little gig based on the strength of that. Um, and you know, that's how I met flow. Yeah. So you're at the Austin school of film when you get contacted <laughs> by Flowcast at the time mm-hmm. and they, they have a project for you to go to Africa. Mm-hmm. Dude, the, that story is incredible. Talk to me about it. Explain how that went down. Yeah. So I'm basically, I'm doing freelance production work and then I'm teaching, you know, on the side and I'm doing okay. And when, when you're not making any money, making any money is like great. And so Mark reached out to Mark, uh, Mark Floriani. Floriani at Flowcast reached out to Austin School of Films, like a little small nonprofit that helps, you know, kids get into creative fields if they want. Um, and so I'm teaching there and um, he reaches out and says he has a project. I go meet Mark and totally bizarre, dude. Totally bizarre. I'm just used to, I mean, I'm not some, you know, madman suit guy, but still, you know, I go to their office on Fifth Street, which is just, you know, heart of downtown. And I pull in the driveway in their parking lot and they're all in the parking lot playing football. Whole company, which is only like 10 people, but shirts off, summer, football. And I'm like, hey, Guys, and Mark just goes, yeah, Ray, yeah, Ray, be, be, you know, be right there. We're just, we got a flag football team. We're just kind of doing some stuff. Okay, cool. And I go inside and Pat Hitchens, you ever meet Pat Hitchens? Yeah, once. Yeah, once is enough. (laughs) And uh, he's in there on the couch and I'm like, okay. And then they come in and they're all, Mark has his shirt off, you know, he's like, yeah, man, so. We got this thing. We want to go shoot this project. Holly Gavrisalasi is um, going to be premiering, and he's going to run the New York City Marathon. His sponsor is Adidas, and so I thought we could do some content around him. Cool. Where's he at? Africa. Okay. Awesome. Really? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and so I remember Mark and Martin and the company had no concept of production. Just, I'm not some... I'm not like Roger Deacon. I'm not some huge expert, right? I'm not like, I don't know everything. I know just a little bit, especially in the world of production. I know a little bit, but it was like, I know way more than anyone there. I'm like, okay, um, cool. And just all the details, he had no idea. Like, where's he going to be in Africa? Probably the capital, Addis Ababa. Okay, but like out in the country, in the city? Yeah, I don't know. Can we get on the phone with them? Probably not. How long will I have? Maybe a day. How many videos do you want? How many can we get? Just like a very bizarre conversation. Like, and so, you know, I remember being like, okay, dude, if I go, it's going to, I'm going to at least send, I need two, I need me and someone else. Why? Just to get enough B-roll. I don't know what B-roll means. I was like, um, B-roll's the other thing. <laughs> like, it was like, there's like the main thing you're shooting, A roll, and then B roll is all the other stuff, like the stuff that your talent is not in. This B roll, okay? Why do you need two cameras? Because you were going to Africa for a day. If I have two cameras, I get twice as much footage. <laughs> just like seems, you know. And he's like, cool, and I'll, you know, just like no details, and you know, and that, that, and that's how these agencies operate. Is like, 
it's like a weird thing, you know. Um, Adidas, the way they operate, they don't just it's not what you, how you think it actually works. And so literally it's like we had enough pull with Holly to get a day with him, but that was all we we're going to get. <clears throat> and so oddly enough, Mark trying to get the most out of his travel dollar, he goes, also have an event in cyclecross. Can you do that too? I said, what do you want me to do for the event? Stream it live. I said, okay. And I was like, Mark, just so you know, there is nothing cohesive about live production and documentary storytelling. They're not, I know, yes, they both, okay, I, they both use cameras, but there's where they all, when <laughs> the relationship stops, but he was just like, you know, it, no one else could do it. And so I, I, I don't know why, but I agreed. And so I literally flew to Addis Ababa. Like my passport was stamped at like three o'clock in the morning and it was like brutal, dude. It was like, okay, are you going to help me get like a visa? Nah, you just got to go. Okay, cool. So, you know, I had to go do as a travel visa, not, you know, a job, a business visa. And so I literally had all this production. We had DSLR, so they were small cameras, but like I'm there with Chad and I open up my suitcase in Ethiopia and there's like serious production equipment. Not, it's not like, you know, we're not going to shoot Inception 2, but you know, it's, it's, it's legit stuff. We have like, you know, shoulder rigs and all this audio stuff. And he's like, this is business equipment. No, no, no. I'm just really into photography. Tourist. Yeah. No. <laughs> and I was just like, yes, no, this is bit. Nope. <laughs> That's all I did. And sure enough, as time goes on, there's just people accumulating in the queue. And he's just like, okay, go. <laughs> and I was like, dude. Wow. Because that would have been expensive. Dude, that would have been. Crushed the budget. It, cru it, it, it crushed me personally. This is like the first thing, the big, biggest thing. You know, I was like doing some stuff, but like, this is the thing, you know? Yeah. I'm going for Adidas and Flo to go do a thing about, you look up Haile Gabriel Selassie. It, his name's H-A-I-L-E-G. <laughs> You'll never spell Gabriel Selassie. But he's a very, 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 he's like one, you know, he's like 28 world records. So it was a big thing. And um, so you get back from Africa and how long after until you got offered a job at Flow? Probably I started editing the videos and they were rough because it was just insane. You know how the Flow timeline is. It's like now. And I was just kind of throwing them together. Um, so probably by the time they all got out, you know, or I was done with them, which is like two weeks for five videos. And you didn't want to work there, right? No, I didn't. I was just like, this is too much, man. I went from... Ethiopia, then to Madison, Wisconsin. Just think about this. Like I, I had to like get all the equipment and bring it there with me, get all the equipment back. Like I didn't know whether or not we'd have storage to get the media on drives. So I had to like, when I rented the equipment, I was like, yeah, I need 10, three terabyte flash cards. <laughs> like, why? It's like, I just need all, I've rented all of them. Cause I wasn't sure. I don't know where I was going to be. So like I came back with like the footage in my pockets Right? It's just like, dude, I don't know. It is too much. And then from there, I went to Madison, Wisconsin. And I had to like, I did the production. I mean, like, I went to Home Depot and got the scaffoldings, assembled the scaffoldings. 
put up the cameras, hired the crew, ran the cable, did everything, just everything. You know, I'm like, man, this is, it is a lot of work. <laughs> and so, uh, but everything worked out great. And so they said, Hey man, bring on full time. And you know, um, uh, you just gotten, you know, in your recent past, you've been laid off like three times. Yeah. You thought flow was probably put together with duct tape. You were like, I don't know if I want to take this risk. Right. It was definitely put together with duct tape. And, and the reason why I stayed is, is a, is something Mark said. And I, <laughs> it's always sort of embarrassing when I tell the story, but like I said, you know, they weren't offering me a lot of money. It was like nothing, but it was steady and I had insurance and I had Emma and basically it came down to, you know, I was like, Mark, I've done the, I've done the, um, what's it called? The startup thing before it never really works out great. And, uh, Martin was in the room at this point and Mark says, Ray, uh, Mark says, Martin, you know, Ray's had some bad startup experiences, blah, blah, blah. Martin goes, we're not a startup. I was like, dude, if you don't think you're a startup, you are fucking high. Like, this is a startup as it gets, dude. You don't know what you're doing. And so we exited that room. And I'm talking to Mark Laird. I said, man, I just don't know, man. I, I kind of got a thing now. And I got some freelance. I got, you know, I'm fine. 400 square foot apartment. That's cool. I like insurance. That'd be great. Something a little more steady. But, man, I don't really care. How do I know it's going to pan out? You know, he said, we can give you options. We can give you I don't know what's going to pan out. He goes, man, you just got to believe. And I was sort of embarrassed that he would, say, he would say that, you know, like, I don't think you're supposed to say that in a professional environment. <laughs> right? It's just a very strange sentence to say. Man, he, just, he said it's dead faced. You just got to believe. And I was like, and Mark and Martin and the team made assembled Fenton, Joe, Bader, Trong, you know, these guys, if they were anything, they were winners. I could just tell. I know what a winner looks like. These guys are winners. And if they don't figure out gold, they're going to get silver. And if they can't figure it out, they're going to get the next best thing. And, you know, they just, I think, man, they're going to figure it out. And um, if anything else, I'll have more stories. And so maybe I'll get to go back to Africa. For the record, I've never been back. I never basically did any content ever again. I actually took the jobs. I thought I'd have insurance and I'd get a lot more reps because I wanted to do more content. Basically never made content again. <laughs> right? I just got to have, you know, unloaded fucking other stuff on me. So but anyway, that's but anyways, the story. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you made the right call. Uh, that was pre rate them raising any money. Oh, yes. And that then, was pre them making a nickel. Yeah. It was, I don't know how they did it. It's very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Uh, let's talk about content now. Uh, and I'm going to jump to a lot of different things mm -hmm. when it comes to content. I think one of the best things that you've been able to do, you and your team, has been able to go into these sports that nobody's shined a light on, shine a light and build community. How do, how do you, there's probably, there's tons of direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies and other companies selling online that they don't have a brand, that they're unable to build community and they don't really know about content. What's your advice to them and how do you build community? Oh, man. <laughs> um, well, oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so... 
the, 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 the thing that we've done is when we go into a community, one, we have, we actually have a purpose for being there. We're, we're going to the community with something to do in mind. When one, we're going to do events, we're going to do contents when we have a purpose, right? But one of the ways we get into the community is you, you have to have someone on the team who's in the community. You just have to have that person who's has contacts and credibility and relationships and buys into the vision of the company. You know, if someone shows up just an alien force and wants to like, we're going to get into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, it is not going to happen. It's too closed off. It's too, it's a small world. You know, I have experienced that from when I was in Austin, I moved into Austin trying to get into production. Uh, uh-uh. not going to happen unless you're like, some A-list celebrity who wants to get involved in all. And so, you know, when I got to Austin, I started doing content and working with people. And then all of a sudden I, I worked with other people and I got their credibility and then stuff started coming to me. So we have the same approach. You know, we have to have subject matter experts who have credibility. And then what we do is we pair them. So our purpose is to, you know, hype up events and then engage subscribers with content. That's the, purpose. Our whole vision is that, you know, underserved sports finally get all the love they could ever want. Right. And so that's what we do. When we first go into a sport, we have to find the people who are willing to buy into who, who are already doing that. They're already like how for flow grappling, you know, he was already had a couple, a website. He was already creating content. He had moved to Brazil to do content and study jujitsu. And so that's a guy who's who's already kind of doing it. And so my job is to find those people, assemble that team and give them the resources, pair that enthusiasm with someone who actually knows how to tell stories. And that's where the sauce happens, right? So Mark Floriani, a very similar story. Mark wanted to bring more cool content to track. Why can't track be the coolest sport in the country? Right. And so in fact, when I took the job, I was like, man, I'm not some big sports guy. I'm just not. And I told Mark that. I said, man, I'm not some bug. I'm not some big sports guy, dude. I don't know anything about track, wrestling, gymnastics, cycling, or swimming, or sailing. We were in sailing at the time. And Mark said, perfect. <laughs> I don't need any more sports people, right? What I need is people who know how to tell stories. And so I we will get the sports people, and we will pair them with content people. And together, we will make something authentic. And so... You know, they were sort of ahead of their time in that regard. You know, it was like doing you know creator content from the from a from the perspective of these sports. And so, long story short, you know, you have to you have to have credibility in the community that usually comes with someone who's already doing it, and then giving them the creative resources to do more of that is is kind of how we do it. So. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think the one part of your story you're sort sort of selling short is um the storytelling aspect, the storytelling in the content that y'all create. I think. Well, that's it, what I mean, though. That's what I mean, though. So, like, you know, we we'll take Bader with wrestling and my content team. Bader is an expert. He knows the Mark Perry story. He yeah. just knows Mark Perry so cool. You know, that guy. He went against you know his uncle. And with Iowa against Oklahoma, you know Oklahoma State and whatever, right? But he doesn't know how to tell that story. He just knows it's this really cool thing, right? And so he brings that to us. If you're an outsider, 
if I'm just searching for stories on the internet, you are just never going to, it is, it is, it is going to be hard to find that story. Right. And it's going to be hard to do it authentically without Bader as a subject matter expert in the sport. Yep. And so that's the, that's the juice is like. Well, it, pairing the two. Yeah. Pairing the two. Right. And so oftentimes what happens is you get, there's a lot of services online where you can buy stories, right? You have, if we're trying to, we're trying to build community in wrestling, trying to build community in, you know, grappling. Oftentimes what happens is if you're a, if you're a storyteller, you know, big S storyteller, and you went to some big fancy pants film school and your, your main thing is to like impress your other film school friends, right? Where, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm trying to impress the wrestlers. And so I'm trying to be authentic to the story. And you've seen this. We'll, we'll play it for the wrestlers. And the wrestlers will say, yeah, you can't show that shot because he doesn't finish it. That's a bad shot. It, that's, that's not good. You know, everyone knows what a touchdown looks like. Guy stretches out, catches the ball over the line. But, you know, you don't know what that is for wrestling. You know, you're, you're I remember Martin on my ass about Terry. He's like, you're Terry is a documentary documentary. We did. He says, you're, you know, when Kendall, when Terry's turning on Kendall cross like that, you cut, you're cutting before he did cutting before the thing. And I was like, well, what's the thing that, that, that's the thing. Don't cut there, cut there. Right. And yep. so pairing really talented filmmakers with experts who actually know the thing and knowing what are, what are details we need to include and what are details we can leave out. Cause yep. sometimes they'll want everything in there, you know, but yep. so, that's the outside looking externally when you see content that other brands create and I'm talking not not commercials per se but like storytelling um where do you where do you think brands make the biggest mistakes um I don't know that's a good one um I, I I think brands probably make the biggest mistake when they try to do too many things. They're trying to be, you know, I see, I see brands out there who are trying to be, I mean, I'll use us for an example, you know, like what are we doing and when, when are you trying to do too much? So too many brands try to be e-commerce. They try to build a brand. They try to do, um, you know, they're trying to build like, you know, companies out there are trying to be a media site and a merchandising site and an events platform and a, and a thing and an ad and a PR. And they're trying to do, they're trying to do all the things instead of doing the thing that, that has the most impact for the community or, or for, you know, their purpose. Uh, the, th the story I like to use is Steve Jobs with Apple. You know, when I was at UNO late in, in the late nineties, early 2000, you got on the Apple website and they'd sell like a flea market, you had cameras and lenses and everything, you know, um, I mean, you can buy headphones and speakers and, you know, when Steve jobs took over, he was like, no, we don't even do this shit. Good. <laughs> Let's do the one thing we're going to, we're going to, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do, uh, computers done. <laughs> right. It's like all of a sudden overnight, it like all that other stuff fell off apple.com all of a sudden now just like, wait a minute, man, I was going to buy that Canon, you know, whatever. It's gone now, right? And so honing in on that and doing that one thing well, I think is is what brands should do. Yep. All right, you have a bunch of sayings that I love that I wrote down. I'm going to go through them one by one, and I want you to just 
describe what it means. <laughs> and Man, this feels like a test. <laughs> no, no, no. This is good. All right. Gussy it up. Gussy it up. Um, You know, give it a what for. Now, you know, gussy it up means I needs a little love. Got gussy it up a little bit. You know. Context? Context. Uh, I don't know. Did I say something specifically? Like if somebody shows you a video, you're like, oh, gussy it up. Yeah, you gussy it up a little bit. So like, yeah, for instance, um... Yeah, just just yesterday, Christian sent me a uh, his content plan, and it's like paragraph, and then like just a bulleted list. It's like it's just a, a title bulleted list, title bulleted list. I mean, you got gussy this up a little bit. Give me give me a little something here, <laughs> you know. It's like so you need gussy it up, you know. You make it shorter, put some color effects on it, do something, gussy it up, you know, gussy yourself up a little bit. Salt and pepper. Um. So put it's real similar to gussy it up. I think <laughs> usually I use salt and pepper as in just give me the facts. I say don't put no salt and pepper on it. That's usually what I say. Just give it to me straight. That's I need I need usually from, from sales and partner success. Don't put no salt and pepper on it. Just give it to me straight. What did the client say? Don't tell me what you think they said. Give me the words. No salt and pepper. Lickety split skis. Lickety split skis. <clears throat> that usually means you're fucking late. <laughs> and hurry up. After after Flo raised the Series B round, you said 21.2 million bricks. Get to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think a lot of companies when they when they raise money internally, the the senior senior leadership team doesn't really fall into this trap, but a lot of people think, oh, we have $21 million or, you know, we can, good, we've arrived. No, no, no. We just landed in the front yard are 21 million bricks and we need to start building. Like something needs to be done with every single one of those bricks. And our job now is to start laying them. And so it's actually like they don't give you the money for the job well done. It's like, here's, this is a promise. You said you would do this if we gave you this. So now get going. And yep. so it's really, it's a, important to get that mind frame in your employees. Yep. All right. Last one's a direct quote. You texted me, uh, dude, you ever want to get fired up, put on Africa, Toto, bro. Song gets me fired up. <laughs> yeah. I remember, you know, we had this, um, God, what was that? What was that chat? Google chat we had? Yeah. Gold, pro- solid gold, eighties gold. Uh, yeah. There's a few people on that where we just share songs from the 80s that we just loved yeah random songs so we'd listen to youtube and like man every time toto comes up dude i get fired up that's a great song toto, toto it, weezer did a re- remake of that what yeah sounds just like the original shut up i'm youtube it later dude i'm gonna um, have to okay last thing on content just to get back to that quick is um how do you codify good content it's such a subjective thing yeah do you guys codify it or do you think it's important for companies to, before they make investments in content, they codify what stands as good content. So no, you know, it reduces confusion. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough. A lot of times what the code is are the people you hire to, to do it. Right. Like that's kind of what it is. Like I used to, you know, for all practical purposes, I am the code. Right. I just that's my job is to be the guy who I know what good is and I know what good for us is. And so that's like a really draconian way to put it. However, 
you know, as best you can, you can articulate what you mean. Like, and so for instance, for us, we want there always to be a sense of being there, a sense of presence. You know, we want there to be, um, we're trying to be inspiration. I always say inspirational, not informational. You know, people want to know the facts like in Wikipedia. We want to be inspired. Right. And so, um, as best we can, you know, we, 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 we do try to codify those things with, with actual specific things you can point to. Like I want a feeling of presence. And when I say that, that usually can be audio. It usually can be going longer on takes, you know, uh, you know, you can, you can hear the natural sound when you're in a room, you know, one thing that drives me crazy is when you see, uh, uh, in, in trailers or hype videos, They'll show, they'll show stuff going on and you can't hear, you can't hear what's going on. Like if it were me, a slow motion shot of someone catching a ball in football, you would always hear the crowd. Always. Even if it's faint. But you'll notice, you know, you'll see really badass photography and video and you'll see guys playing basketball, but you won't hear it. You should always hear a squeak, always hear something, something that gives you a sense of presence. And so our whole thing is, you know, where we stand out is like, since, since our communities are small, we're passion sports, people are, they're diehard. You don't get into jujitsu unless you're into, unless you're doing it. You know, you don't just become a casual watcher. It's too complicated. So if you're doing it, then that means you know what it's like and you kind of want to be there. And so a sense of being there is what we're always going for. So you do that with sound, you do that with, different different moves and so that's that's one of the things we that that's an example of how we can codify that kind of stuff what are, what are the top met, like one to two metrics you look at to be like okay that's that's a good piece of content right there yeah um usually it's if i one every every one you should just feel something period right and some people are they don't I mean, it's a really a hard thing. You have to know what good looks like. Some people do not know. They they just don't know, you know. And so, <laughs> I mean, you're laughing. It's it's just true. It's um, I get people all the time to send me a piece. Hey, man, this brand wants to work with us. Here's a piece they did. What do you think? And I'm like, oh my god, this is so terrible. There's someone out there who thinks this is talking about our baby, right? There's someone out there who thinks this is money, right? Um. But so, you know, you have to know what good looks like. And that's just that that's just true. And if it's a hype video, you know, I should be excited. I should feel something. That's that's the thing. If I should laugh, I should in a good piece of content. We'll do lots of those things. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, I taking it back. Do you think, you know, say five, ten, whatever many years from now, post flow that you'll ever do film that you'll go back to like the original passion point of you, you know, watching movies at your grandma's that original like fire that was lit back then. Yeah. Do you want to direct films at some point? Is that, I don't think so. I mean, I would like to work in that field to be honest. I'm not really, I, I know now where I'm good and I, I'm not really good there. Uh, I'm not, that's not my, I doesn't say I, I, I don't want to be involved in maybe producing or at some, 
at some level, sure. But in the back, you know, back in the day, I wanted to like direct and write and actually make it. And that's not, you know, I, I talk to content creators all the time now. I'm like, man, I just, I don't have it like that. It's like you say, you know, I want to be a professional athlete. And then all of a sudden you start doing it, you get to high school and get to college. Like, Oh my God, I'm terrible. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's not say you can't be successful. Right. There's a lot of, it also doesn't say you can't be successful being a filmmaker. There's a lot of shit movies out there, but you know, I think where I'm really good as, as finding talent and putting teams together and creating an environment where creativity can happen. Yeah. I think that's where I am the best. And so whether that be, and that makes me happy. I, I feel like when I find a good editor, a good shooter, or a good, um, you know, even writer, even though I don't really find many of them, but, you know, that makes me feel like I'm winning, is finding those precious creators. I think it's because I, I wish I was better than I was. Um, but, like, finding them, collecting them, giving them time and space to refine their chops is like really rewarding for me. And so I take a lot of pride in the fact that I've got, I've asked some people on my team who are, I'm not, I don't say this to brag, but they are world-class fucking period. You know, they're, 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 they're the thing. And so they got that good because we know what good looks like. And then we give them tons of reps while we're doing this podcast, you know, it's just reps, you know, you got to do a lot of it. So letting people be in the chair and get good at it is really rewarding for me. And I'm 40 years old, dude. <laughs> it is a hustle, which is young, but it's a hustle. We live in a world that's kind of crazy right now. Are you adding more to the system than taking from it? I wasn't willing to tell myself that I didn't believe in myself enough to make it work. Come to Austin, just do cool stuff. That's the cover charge. 